My name is Kevin, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you each and every week to tune into this online broadcast, and ways you can support this is first, follow our online broadcast, listen, make comments underneath if you choose, but also to follow our Instagram page, to like our Facebook page. And you can, underneath whatever social media channel you listen to, put questions underneath or comments, and we will answer and try to address those in real time. You can financially support what we do here through our website, resonatelife.org under the give tab. If you click on the give tab, you can give to us financially. Even if it's small, we will use it for the glory of the kingdom and the glory of Jesus Christ. You are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 for this podcast. And this will also be available up and running on our um, audio podcast on Friday night. So if you are an audio listener, our technical person, Adam, will have that up and running on Friday evening. So if you are climbing a mountain, hiking a trail, riding, well, don't ride a bike and listen, um, or going for a walk, walking your dog, whatever you want to do on Saturday morning, you can listen to the audio version. And then Sunday morning, this will be replayed Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So we are coming together for this broadcast live tonight for a better understanding of Exodus 20, verse 1 through 24, verse 8. And if you have been following us online for a while, you know that we've covered all the other chapters of Exodus, and you can go back and listen to all of those broadcasts if you choose and desire to. So tonight, I am joined with Jake Flug and Sherea Bodner, two of my brilliant leaders from Resonate Christian Church. They join me tonight to bring some light and understanding to Exodus 20, verse 1 through 24, verse 8 tonight. Welcome, Sherea and Jake. Thank you. We are no longer guests. Wonderful. You're no longer guests. You've been with us now consistently digging through these scriptures preview of what's coming up is we will be covering um, some heart issues in our next series called Atlas of the Heart springboarding off of Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart. We will be talking about all kinds of biblical ideas when it comes to emotional places we go when we feel threatened, emotional places that we go when we are afraid or when we experience a sense of joy or experience a sense of success. Where do we go emotionally in those places to learn how to have healthy emotions, emotional intelligence, and good responses in a Christian Christ-like way to life? All right. Without further pause and procrastination. I'm going to turn it over to Shreya to read chapter 20. That's where we're going to read from in our evening broadcast. 
All right, Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth, thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals, or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the horn and the mountain smoking, the people shook with fear and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid because God has come only to test you and to make sure you are always in awe of God so that you don't sin. The people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness in which God was present. The Lord said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. You saw for yourselves how I spoke with you from heaven. Don't make alongside me gods of silver or gold for yourselves. Make for me an altar from fertile soil on which to sacrifice your entirely burned offerings, your well-being sacrifices, your sheep and your oxen. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I make sure my name is remembered. But if you do make an altar for me from stones, don't build it with chiseled stone, since using your chisel on the stone will make it impure. Don't climb onto my altar using the steps. Then your genitals won't be exposed by doing so. Just love the Bible. And I just love how we just end on that verse. Let's just make sure we don't do that. You know, wear some underwear or something before you climb those steps. <laughs> All right, Jake, why don't you uh, summarize? I'm just going to move on past that. Jake, why don't you summarize where we're at right now? We need a summary because Shrey just landed a bomb right in the middle of our discussion there with that last verse. So help us get to speed. Why should we not walk upstairs to expose ourselves to others. Where is this Probably won't from? get to that, but I will do a summary from <laughs> the beginning. Um, the beginning of Exodus starts with, there is a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And so the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, fell into slavery. 
And for a full amount of time, they were slaves in Egypt and God heard their cry and called upon Moses to save, to save and rescue them. And so the story goes that Moses was in a ark, a basket, floated down the river and pulled out of the water and saved by Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as his own. That's her own, sorry, that'd be weird. Adopted it as her own and sent him back to his mother because her dad was killing all Hebrew infants at the time. I forgot that part. So saves, saves Moses. Moses grows up. Moses comes back to live in the, the palace with Pharaoh's daughter. He gets all the best education, all the best training, military training, leadership training, language. And then he comes out. He sees that one of his people is being beat up by a overruler and he kills the overruler and buries him in the sand and he is exposed he knows people know that he did it and so he runs to the land called Midian where there is a priest named Jethro or Horeb or Ru Reuben Hobab Reuben as well right Ru Ruel? Raul 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 yeah. sorry so it's all the same guy, and he is, becomes Moses' father-in-law. Moses goes to the out with his, his uh, flock one night, and he witnesses a burning tree. And the burning tree tells him to go back. He's on holy ground and tells him that you're going to rescue my people out of Israel. I've heard their cry. So Moses runs back to Israel reluctantly, meets his brother Aaron halfway somehow, and goes into Egypt, performs miracles, wonders. And the final of that plague is called the, the Passover death, the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so they're forced out of Israel, out of Egypt. All of Israel is. And they run to the Reed Sea where the sea is parted. They get to the other side on dry ground. And then God smashes the Israelite army, I'm sorry, the Egyptian army that's chasing after them and they all die. So now they're on the other side in the desert and they're there for quite a while where God rains down manna and quail to eat. He guides them with a tower of flame and a tower of smoke. And that tower of flame and smoke rests on Mount Sinai where God tells Moses to go up and to receive the law that's going to govern God's people to make them a holy nation set apart to bless the world. And this is the start of the 10 commandments. Nice. Well, that was a wonderful summary. Thank so you. now, yeah, it's awesome. So, so there's some problems that we've with already discussed. Okay. No, not with your summary with, with uh, two things or two camps. These are at intention. Was the book of Exodus a historical story? And was the book of Exodus a mythicized history narrative? So if it's a historical story, all these people actually existed in the time frame in which the story is written and told. 
uh, and all the events happened. Uh, if it's mythicized history, narration, narrative type story, then it's a story about people, events, and ideas, but the story is about the gods. And you have gods of Egyptians and you have the God, Yahweh, the Hebrew God. And we take, I'm not going to speak for the other two. I take, <laughs> I know they do too, the version of mythicized history. And the reason why is the, the entire book of Exodus basically shows and is a cyclical example of the Genesis creation, recreation narrative. That's the purpose really of the whole first section of, of Exodus is to show a recreation where we have chaos with the plagues and then the recreation or parting of water, splitting of water. And that's, that's a picture of salvation to the other side, to the promised land, land of milk and honey. And that would be like heaven. That would be the picture of what like eternity or an eternal uh, place. Uh, the people that believe that it's a historical story have a lot of challenges to overcome. They have a lot of things that really are uh, problematic, like God orders the killing of people. Um, God orders the angel of death, releases the angel of death to kill children. Um, there's some problems that are unanswerable and unreconcilable with a historical uh, idea. But that's not the reason why, it, just because you can't rectify something or figure something out, why does God do what he does? That's not the reason why I take and, and mythicize history version. Um, there's greater theological and understandings of God that can be found and were taught in a mythicized historical narrative. So we are entering into this section with all of that in mind, where it's a mythicized history, and we're entering into a section of law and entering into a section where there are sections of this, these passages that exist elsewhere besides the Bible. They exist elsewhere besides in the sacred Exodus text. And I believe that it's the word of God, that the Bible is the word of God. I also believe that the Bible does fantastic, amazing narration of story. And there are bigger truths and underlying truths to the events that are happening. There's a greater truth always to understand. So, you know, you have magic bread, you have magic birds, and you have magic water coming out of the rock, magic smoke and magic flames of fire, pillars of fire that are leading people around. Um, you have people dying and people succeeding and Egyptian armies uh, being swallowed up by, um, by the sea. And, and so, so just the, the ideas are just the the mythicized ideas that are happening, there are greater understanding. So when we're talking today, I just want to encourage us that there are greater 
ideas and greater understandings to this narrative than just the players or just the characters. Yeah. And so there's a greater, there's a greater thing. So, so the splitting of water, what's that song, Jake, that I actually played on Sunday? Wake me up. No. Yeah. Yeah. Avicii. Avicii. What is it? Yeah. Okay. That song. Okay. So if you just go and you type that into Google and you look up a video, listen to that song, watch the video and you'll see a crossing of a river on a horse. She's on it. She's on a horse and she crosses the river from judgment, bondage and oppression to salvation. So in literature, you see the splitting of water and in more literature than just the ancient biblical text, you'll see the splitting of water means salvation. So salvation happens first out of oppression, slavery, bondage, abuse, control, the empire. Uh, Egypt was the most powerful and wealthiest nation that existed. And then they're released from that. They basically run across a dry bed that the waters split and they're saved. So salvation happens first. And now we're on the other side. That's an important idea to keep in mind because of later on. So, so the point now of basically starting in Exodus 20, there's a goal that the, the Hebrew people need to become first a community they need to become a community that's not in bondage. Now, this, this story was written in exile. So in exile, we're talking uh, 500s BCE. And in exile, they would have been in bondage. They would have been in slavery. They would have been in abuse again. So the idea of being saved through the water again, that they need to learn to be a community after this uh, after this exile, they need to learn how to be a, a community that obeys and worships God and God alone again. And so this is like an, a movement into an instruction where they're going to learn obedience. They're going to learn worship. They're going to learn to bless other nations and they're, le- they're going to learn to be a community. So this requires some training. This requires some memorization of what's good and what's bad and what's blessed and what's evil and what's, you know, right and what's wrong. And so we are going to enter into, into that, uh, into those scriptures. So one of the techniques that is used is to take time tested methods, stories and law and incorporate them into the biblical text, something that they would have already known and they would have incorporated it into the narrative. So the first one is Hammurabi's Code. So Jake, why don't you take that one? Sharia is going to take some other ones. And so so take Hammurabi's Code and and where do we find that in the scripture? What do we see with that? What what is it? What is Hammurabi's, Hammurabi's Code. Hammurabi code. Hammurabi's code um, is seen throughout scripture, um, mostly through uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, but it's echoed in other places. Anywhere that there was uh, 
the the most common one is eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and it's it's directly quoted in deuteronomy and parts of exodus uh but hammurabi was a babylonian king lived in about 1750 bce and would have predated um king david if you would if you follow that lineage, I believe David was about a thousand to eight hundred people believe, and then seventy six, yeah, ish, and then uh, and Hammurabi, after his thirtieth rule in power, started taking over other city state kingdoms in Mesopotamia, Babylon. So think about present day Iraq, or if you ever heard of the Fertile Crescent, and so what Hammurabi spread, not just military, but spread uh, irrigation and spread rule of law. So his kingdom- We saw tank, we saw, actually saw tanks and vehicles go over the Tigris and Euphrates, didn't we? Yeah, so we saw- When we invaded, over, when we uh, invaded The Iraq. upper one, I believe is Tigris and that's Bag, Baghdad is on- is on the shore of the Tigris River. Have to, we'd have to look that up. But yes, I remember Baghdad is on the shore that. of the Tigris River. And so we, we actually watched that being crossed, not the Euphrates, that would be. Mm. But Euphrates. Long time ago. Even, even that story we're telling was a long time ago. Yeah, it was in high school. 20 um, years ago. And so you have, I mean, present day Euphrates conflict think about Syria mm-hmm. uh, still going on in the dam in Utria mm. uh, so Hammurabi is, is probably the most important figure for written code I think it's the first written code that we have on a, it's called a steel it's a cylinder that can be mass produced if you roll it over clay. That's Hammurabi's code. So Hammurabi's code is something that is ancient that was planted in the narrative in different places in scripture. And it would have been familiar. People would have known it. People would have heard it or at least been at least nuanced, like, well, maybe I've heard this before. My great grandma said something like this, eye for an eye, two for two. So like they would have known, they would have known the code. They would have been at least familiar, right? So since they were taken over in in Babylon, they definitely would have known the code. But other kingdoms that were taken over, other kingdoms, especially Israel in the north and then Judah in the south, um, they were they they would have had to follow the code themselves. Yeah, there'd have been no option. So even if it wasn't called that, they would have known the language. Yeah, and they would be expected to follow it. Right. Or face death penalty. When so in my uh, journey of deconstruction, I was in for my master's degree, I was at Pepperdine uh, University. And I went to a traditional Bible college and then I went off to uh, 
uh, take a, 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 some coursework through Pepperdine and, you know, Pepperdine is not considered, you know, a pro- necessarily a progressive college by any means, but I was sitting there in my old Testament prophets class and we were going over the book Isaiah and the professor said that there was three authors to the book. And I had never heard that before three authors to the book of Isaiah. And I know there's actually more than that now, but I was just like three main sections and three different authorships. And I was just like, wow, I, I just was shocked, you know, that I would, had never heard this before. Number one, I'm a pretty, you know, smart dude, I thought at the time. And I had never heard that, that the books of the Old Testament had different traditions and different time frames and different people speaking into those time frames, all called the book of Isaiah. And, and so then I just learned something new. Of course, I took that information home. And one thing that I've learned in my learning in unformed learning information, when I learn something new, I don't necessarily take that home and go, honey, guess what? And then I just explain it all to Amanda sitting there tired at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, trying to explain, you know, three different authorships of this and where did this come from? And so it kind of freaked her out. I, it would have freaked anybody out. You know, Kevin just comes home with like new information that no one has ever heard before. So that just kind of, ex- I started this journey of discovering that the Bible wasn't just so cut and dry. It wasn't just so, you know, this is this and that is that. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't hardlined like that. Black and white. And what? It was not black and white, linear. Right. I just didn't, I didn't understand that. And so, so my next adventure was in Genesis where I started learning different uh, stories of Genesis like, and we're going to talk about this um, in a minute, but like the Noah story and Gilgamesh and Utnapish team and that idea. And that was nuanced. I was like, wow, that's interesting. And then Genesis is a poem and didn't have to be literally seven days. It could be, you know, just a poem. It could be something different, a different type of story. Uh, probably one of the most impactful moments was uh, Pastor Jake, who's with us tonight and I years and years ago, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago now, maybe longer. We were down in California um, at a conference at a college um, at Claremont and a professor from Germany was there by the name of Jürgen Maltmann. And it was a bunch of PhD uh, candidates candidates in the room and they were taking their, their, some of their papers and reading and then people would criticize back ask questions. And then Jürgen Maltmann would ask like a question. And then they had to answer that. And it was just like, you know, too super high stressful anyway. So we're there and we're like way out of our league. It wasn't even, you know, in our ballpark of knowledge. All of a sudden this guy just pipes up in the middle of the middle of the, uh, the session. And he says, Jürgen Maltmann, Mr. Dr. Maltmann, do you have any thoughts about the book of the dead and how the 10 commandments are directly just pulled out of the book of the dead? Sure. Put that up there for us for a show and tell. I was shocked. I did not know what to do with that information. Shreya, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us about the book of the dead? That was a really, really great intro. Thanks. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the Book of the Dead is a collection of spells um, that Egyptian people, mostly mostly those who were wealthy or royalty, would learn in hopes of um, essentially tricking the gods into letting them into the, the good place. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so That's funny. I, I don't know what the Egyptian word would be called, but the Egyptian heaven, the good place. Um, spell... I actually believe in the underworld. Yeah. So as they descend into the underworld. Yeah. I don't know the name either, but there you go. <laughs> a good afterlife. They wanted a good afterlife. <laughs> they did. Yeah. <laughs> spell 125 includes uh, what's called the Declaration of Innocence before the gods of the tribunal. Nice. And I'm going to read a couple of those. They'll probably sound familiar. Mm. O far strider who came forth from Heliopolis, I have done no falsehood. O fire embracer who came forth from Kerara, I have not robbed. O swallower of shades who came forth from the cavern, I have not stolen. O dangerous one who came forth from Rosette Chow, I have not killed men. Mm. So thou shalt not are... kill. Thou shalt not yep. steal. Yeah, sounds covet. familiar. Yeah, don't covet. So those are directly out of, show that book one more time. Show and tell us. This is the Egyptian book of the dead. That predates the Ten Commandments. Code. Yeah, oh, no, it predates the Ten Commandments, sure. yeah. the Decalogue. Yeah, definitely predates. And I don't know why, Sheree, I was so shocked by that because, you know, Moses in the narrative was raised Egyptian and Moses receiving, like, the here's yeah. the 10 best ones. I know you know these already, but here's the 10 best ones. Makes complete sense of how that played out. But to know, to know that, that to know this truth, this is the truth, that just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it came from the Bible. And that's something that yeah. we really need to grasp because we see stuff in the New Testament too. Uh, but just because we see it in the Bible doesn't mean it comes from the Bible. Like blessings and curses, Jake, take blessings and curses. That kind of Bless- sounds like a witchcraft thing. Blessings and curses. Well, kind of is. Um, <laughs> blessings and curses, especially in the, the book of commandments, Deuteronomy, parts of Exodus. Uh, they go through, if you follow these things, you'll be blessed. If you follow these rules, you'll be blessed. If you, follow, if you don't follow them, you'll be cursed. And here is your curse. And sometimes it's pretty bad, right? It's like, I will punish your kids to the fourth and fifth generation because of your sins. Um, it's a lot of years that that's a big grudge. I feel that sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we can talk about generational trauma in our next, uh, in our next. And that'll be in the Alex next of the Heart. Yeah. Alex of the Heart series. <laughs> um, anyways. So the. Funny, uh, not funny. But blessings and curses is a structure for 
people in power, say it Babylon or Egypt or Assyria, Syria, to um, to create vassal states or puppet states. And so they would install a king, they install a rulership and say, if you follow these, my commandments, my rules, if you give me a certain percentage of whatever, I will give you this. And if you don't, I will, I will wreak massive havoc upon you. So that's the curse, the blessing and curses. And this points to God creating a holy nation with Israel that is more than just follow these things and you'll be saved ish. It is, I'm trying to create a holy nation with you. And it points more towards nationship than it does individual action. So the nation be blessed, the nation be cursed versus Kevin be blessed, Kevin be cursed. Correct. The problem with that thinking is the individual is carried forward. So it turns from the nation will be blessed and the nation to be cursed to those in like the pharisaical law, those individuals that are following the law would be blessed. Those not following the law would be cursed. So bringing the lamb to the festival that, that on the, on the day that the lamb would be sacrificed, the first fruit of the lamb, the rabbi, the head rabbi would say, do you love your lamb? And without a flinch, you had to say yes, three times. Do you love your lamb? Do you love your lamb? Yes, yes, yes. And if you took care of your lamb and you had total affection, a contractual connection and an attractual affection for your, if I can say that, contractual affection to your lamb, you wouldn't have flinched. Of course, I love my lamb. And so then, then he would sacrifice the lamb. That was a very individual exercise. If you didn't, if your lamb was rejected, your whole family was cursed through the individual rejection carried forward. Then in circumcision and acts, we see those that follow the law of circumcision uh, will be blessed. Those that don't will be cursed forward. Now in new Testament, you can take one step back, Kevin. Okay. Go back in the gospels. Um, the end of Peter's confession. Oh, well, yeah, well, that's, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't finish that one little part. That's what that confession was. The head rabbi, Jesus, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Then go feed my sheep. He's like saying, do you love the ultimate lamb? Do you love this sacrificial lamb? And so, yeah, thank you for tying that. Uh, back together. I totally just skipped the main point of that message. So, so then advance forward to acts with circumcision blessed. If you do don't you're cursed advance that forward then to the theology of the church, follow the piety and you will be blessed with wealth don't follow the piety 
and you will be cursed. It's called the health and the wealth gospel. Advance that forward blessings and curses to the American dream and the American experiment. And those that are blessed in America will be wealthy. Those that follow God will be blessed and will be wealthy. Those that don't follow God will be cursed and will be poor. So the idea of blessings and curses, that is an ancient tool, a contractual tool that if you follow the contract, then you will be blessed. If you break the contract, then you will be cursed. And it goes with the parties, terms, and promises. Yeah. That's covenant cool. language. Yeah. And then the, the promises is that blessing and curse section. Right. But in covenant language, we have something different that you mentioned in some of our pre-work that it's not a contractual idea in covenant language. You might have some similar nuances of follow the law, but the law of love is the overarching idea of a covenant between God and his people and between people and their God. So love supersedes all law keeping. That's what the new Testament people kind of didn't understand. Well, the, whole, time. the whole purpose of establishing a law is so that they would be a nation that outpoured love, right? Not be a nation that outpoured piety. Right. It certainly changed. We, think that now this is a guess jake why don't you take that the last chapter of nehemiah so you have the reestablishment of the walls of jerusalem they come out of their their imprisonment now they're back in jerusalem nehemiah then orders the construction of the building of the walls of the ancient city um so you have the fall of israel of all of israel when it was still one nation. And I think it just slowly snowballed away is when they turned from judges to kings. Mm. And so forever, they forever, forever, from the time of coming into Canaan until uh, Saul took over as king, they had no ruler that, that positioned themselves above anyone else for an extended period of time. And so they just have judges that handle the day-to-day activity, but um, yeah. And so there were four rules that a king was never supposed to do. was never supposed to amass wealth, amass an army, own horses, or uh, externally marry. And so uh, Saul was actually a pretty good king with that. Didn't amass horses, had had a... uh, a kind of a military, but mostly it was people, tribesmen coming down to fight with him. And that was part of the problem is that we can talk about this later in second Samuel, where there was no blacksmith in, in Israel. And then they, you get into David who horrible things happen after that. David. No. in second Samuel, horrible things yeah. happen after horrible, there's no blacksmith. Awful things. Yeah. And then you get into the worst king of all, probably of all time, was Solomon and was the one that pushed Israel right into exile. Massed horses, amassed wealth, 
health, uh, horses and army and wealth were, were power tools as tools of empire, basically. Mm-hmm. Their position themselves looked just like Egypt, which the writer then in this, in this section is saying, don't look just like Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so um, then they get into exile, get thrown away, and Nehemiah comes out and wants to rebuild the wall. But before that, there was a person called Ezra who went out and wanted to rebuild the temple. And so this was what's called the second temple. The first temple would be Solomon's temple. And God never wanted a temple. They just made a temple for God. Because God wanted to move and wanted to be in a tent and be able to be in different cities and places and mountaintops. And I mean, magic bread, magic water, pillars of fire and smoke. That's a lot more fun than a box in the back room. Yeah, I'll be in a box in the back room. <laughs> we can talk about it later. Uh, but the, the, uh, this is the second temple. And in the last chapter of Nehemiah, which was not written by Nehemiah, um, half of Nehemiah was not written by Nehemiah. And you can tell by the verb tense and the language being used, uh, but was written by a priest. And I feel like it is then that you start to see the pharisaical language, the, the Pharisee tradition. We say the pharisaical, but it, we're actually mean people of the Pharisee tradition start to pop up. And so keeping the Sabbath hardcore for your own piety, Sabbath keeping was never for your own piety. It was always for the foreigner, the slave and for, um, Yes, uh, for everybody else but yourself. So as long as everyone kept it, everyone would be healed. I wouldn't say feel. In the last feel. chapter of Nehemiah, it's it's very clear that that it's is pretty clear. Yeah, there is no no nuance to it. There's no. It is cut and dry, Pharisaical law keeping language, and so that's the chapter moving forward that we could say whoever wrote that chapter definitely had pharisaical or the idea of pharisaical law in their mind when they wrote it. Yeah. Sharia, I want you to go, let's go back to point two on our outline, drop some laws into context for me because I need to know some things moving forward because we're about ready to get to the 10 commandments. So drop these laws into context and then take the 10 commandments forward for me. Yeah. Context. Like where were the Israelites? Yeah. Like they were in exile. Right. So while these laws within the narrative are written, looking ahead to the kind of people that they're going to be in the promised land. Um, for the actual editors and compilers and audience of the text, these are, well, partly they're a reminder of who the Israelite people are, um, back to that identity piece. Um, but Explain also, that more to me. what do you mean? Um, preserving traditions in a foreign place. Which is important. Trying to hang on to some of those cultures 
that they would have felt alienated from. Like the Native Americans in the United States, they mm-hmm. they teach their songs and their language yes. and their words and their poems and their beliefs. They transfer that to other, literally other tribes sometimes because they're afraid, they have been afraid to be wiped out. And I think so it just happened trans- two weeks ago. They lost the whole tribe. Yeah. So who has those songs? Who has that language? Who has those beliefs? Right. Keep going. That, that's, that's what I think about when you say that. Yeah. Um, but then there's also um, who are we now in the middle of this exile? How are we going to be? Um, are the, some of these laws do match up um, like with the code of Hammurabi. So there are things that fit with the culture around them um, because that's, part of how you live you have to fit in with the culture around you um but then there are also some things like i am the lord who brought you out of egypt you'll have no other gods before me um that then serve to set them apart from the culture around them um so yeah it's this mishmash of laws preserving culture while also living in a foreign land and to rightly relate to those laws, like if you just had a bunch of laws just thrown mm-hmm. at you, do this, don't do this. I mean, yeah, don't kill people. Don't, you know, lie. Don't look at your neighbor's stuff and want it more than yours. Okay. So those are, <laughs> those are, well, no, cause I want a lot of stuff, you know, but, <laughs> but it's hard. They're, they're hard in and of itself. I don't feel like waking up every day and lying and stealing and killing somebody. So those might be easy, but there's this Hebrew word. uh, Pronounce it for me. So I know Mm -hmm. the halakha. Yeah. Yeah. So what that, that tells me a lot about law when I read about Mm -hmm. it, kind of explain it to our listeners because that's an important idea of moving forward. Yeah. Um, Halakha comes from the Hebrew word to walk. Um, and so it's, it's the way, the path, um, it is, um, almost like commentary on the law, but like practices of trying to work out what these laws mean in a given context. Um, you know, for example, don't lie. Okay. But it is, is it okay to, maybe tell your kids you're going somewhere on their birthday when you're actually going somewhere else. Cause you don't want to spoil the surprise. You know, it, it's contextual. Um, so halakha, I could say halakha, it's okay. Right. I, you know, honestly, uh, I think we behave that way anyways. And I'd rather we were honest about it. Yeah, I think the true. two biggest instances that this sprung out the hardest was when the first temple was destroyed Mm-hmm. And when the, the second temple was destroyed, because no longer did they have a place for sacrifice, mm-hmm. so they had to to figure out based upon halakha what the best way of moving forward would be. Yeah. So when I think about this word halakha, it's it's almost like. Because you explained to me, Shreya, that it means to walk. 
clock. It reminds me of like you're partnered with it, like you're walking alongside maybe of this, but it's something that you actually cherish. It's -hmm. something you appreciate. It's something that you might have an affection for. You might love it. You might love the law. So I wake up and I want to take a walk with the law. I don't want to rob a bank. (laughs) I don't want to steal pens off of the bank counter either you know <laughs> so like i i have this love of the law but then it turns weird like it turns from love of the walk to something completely different to the rule keeping yeah yeah the love yeah. of the law itself hey let's go over one of the 10 commandments sherry are you going to say sherry you're going to send us through a Hebrew exercise. Okay. No other gods before me. Yep. That kind of sounds like, well, there's some options out there. So, so I'm going to have no other gods before me. So, but I get, you know, 10 or 15 other gods, as long as I don't put those gods before God, or is it no other gods in addition to me? Is it like singular or is it plural? What help us with that? Yep. We're going to find out. We haven't done this yet. We're just doing it. Okay. Well, I can see that it's the the last word in verse three. Alpanaya. Mm-hmm. Alpanaya. Uh-huh. Is that um, verse three or four, Jake? This is three. It's three. Oh, right three, there. Okay. Three goes from yep. here. Yep. So my all is like to the, it. yeah. it's like directional or towards um above or over yeah yeah pana is like the face like literally before or facing to my face yeah. not in the face of me yep so do we have some word study there? Can we pull out some options of what that could be translated to? Right, Not right to the, the face of me. Right at the bottom there. Oh, I can't see it. Our faces are in front of that. Oh, move your face there. Sure. Oh, because you're on an iPad, aren't you? Yeah. There you go. Sorry. So turn towards. Uh-huh. Oh, that's the all. That's the two. Okay. Yeah. So this one here, that one there, Jake. Yeah. Okay. To turn toward in worship. which fits the context. Mm-hmm. Consider. So what do you think? Like what, when we look at this, mm-hmm. what is this? What, how should this be translated? Because I I'm confused. You got a little murkier. Um, could we pull up a different verse from this chapter? Yes. Okay. Um, verse 
23 in English says, don't make alongside me gods of silver or gold for yourselves. Um, I'm curious. To be with me. That's interesting. ESV. Okay. Well, hold on. So do not make with gold. Whoa. Gods. Do not make with gods silver or gods. Gold. Gold. Uh-huh. Gold. And do I'll not make. make. Lachem. Them. Don't make them. Yeah. I don't see it to be with me anywhere. Unless you do. Yeah. That's interesting. So that's a gloss. <laughs> Gotta love that, right? From Hebrew to English. Doesn't exist. You to make. Unless it's, what's that ET there? Uh, the next one to the left. Is that like, that's another personal ending, a me ending. Yeah. I'm not sure where you're going for. Um, second line, second word from the right. Yeah. Oh, what Thomas is that? Singler. Huh? It's with common singular. With me. Yeah. Yeah. Do not make. So is it so yeah, let's me. let's yeah. do a little. Are we going to vote on this? Oh, so is it in addition or is it no gods before me? I would, I would definitely put before. Yeah, yeah I think I would I th- too. I think, I think that it is. Alpany, that's that's a pretty, that's a pretty easy. Uh, it's a colloquialism, so it's it's an easy uh, translation mm-hmm. of before, and so, mm-hmm. and it's used lots of times. The so this is this is where I think that if I could interject because you, you two are the Hebrew scholar. So yeah. if you're going to tell me before I could say, could this be a case of the human condition where the human condition is to worship all kinds of things. And that idea of worship just means elevating something to importance or want or desire, or maybe that, pulls you forward so anything that pulls you forward or makes you walk forward towards a goal that's something you're worshiping right you're elevating it up above just human level i guess so the human condition is to do that with all kinds of things so maybe we could leave it god's before me and say that they were probably multiple God worshipers at the time. I, yeah. I, I do not believe that the Israelite people and the Hebrew people were monotheists in any way. Well, they couldn't have been, they, they wouldn't were, have been. I forget the, I forget the actual name for it, but it's, it's single God worshipers, not single God 
Menaltres, thank you. Yeah. Single God worshipers, not single God believers. Believers, right. And so because all the other only, gods would have been taken as fact. There's of course only they been, existed. Right. Two, there's only been two monotheist religions in history. And it's Zoroastrianism. Which are? Oh, Zoroastrianism. Yeah. And you can make a case for either way, but Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, we have an important topic to close on, which will take probably about 10 more minutes. So we want to, we're not going to have any overtime this time because we knew it. We were gonna, I, I just knew we were going to have a little bit longer session tonight. We were bringing up some pretty controversial topics. We wanted to talk through some things uh, at length tonight, but we wanted to get to the book of the covenant, which is the next section. So you have the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then we enter into this section of this governing laws and practice of worship and how to treat others and such called the book of the covenant. And the book of the covenant, if I could just say, was not necessarily, I mean, we can pull timeless truths out of anything and timeless truths are great, but biblical timeless truths are amazing, but you just can't pull uh, law into modern day and expect it to work and expect it to be good and expect it to be relevant. So the book of the covenant definitely um, has to do with how to treat one another. And a lot of the book of the covenant probably was maybe some Canaanite practices that they learned some obedience to Canaanite practices, but but mainly it was how to obey and how to act in this land of Canaan and in this, in this place. And so there's this like social and religious mix of laws, how to treat God, how to worship God and how to treat other people. There are some laws that conflict one another with other places in scripture. And that's where our traditions come into play. So that's the book of the covenant, but there's something really special that Shreya has to share tonight when it comes to the book of the covenant, how to treat one another and how that really is supposed to play out in not only old Testament law, but also new Testament quote, law of love and modern day um, today, (laughs) right now, tonight, how we're treating one another uh, tonight. So (laughs) on St. Patty's day. So help us out, Sharia, tell us, uh, oh, there's just one more thing when it comes to adopting practices and and you're going to kind of close things down, Shreya. I have one more thing to say after you say what, what you're going to do. But just know that the Israelite people in this narrative, you see the adoption of all kinds of practices, laws, Hammurabi's Code, Book of the Dead. You have the blessings and curses uh, 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 structure. You have... Um, you have, you know, Gilgamesh coming into play. 
you have Canaanite practices, Canaanite festivals, Egyptian practices, Egyptian festivals that are just adopted into their way of life. And in the songs, they danced with sistrums. This is actually an Egyptian, well, this is an Eastern Orthodox from Ethiopia. This is an Eastern Orthodox Coptic church uh, instrument where the Ethiopian priest just shook this during prayer. If you can imagine me shaking this on a Sunday morning while I prayed, but this is called a sistrum and is in the shape of the Gulf of Aqaba and the Red Sea. And so this is the shape of the sistrum. That's where that comes from. It comes from that area. And the Israelite people adopted this into their musical instrument. Why? Because it was available. But it was also showing that they're redeeming things that they already know, redeeming things into modern culture, that things were good, things were, you know, there's nothing wrong with this instrument. It's not evil uh, unless you put power to it that's evil. And so they adopted things. Wow, that was theological, wasn't it? <laughs> so you adopt things into uh, into your lifestyle that work, that actually are good for you. But there's a conclusion to all this where I think is important. Shrey is going to bring in a topic. I want you to listen close because this is really how the Israelite people with the law, the conclusion to their law, how it was supposed to play out. Okay. Um, so this story comes from a podcast episode I listened to. Um, and the guest on that podcast um, is by the name of Tyson Yunkaporta who is an indigenous Australian and a lecturer on indigenous knowledge in Australia. Um, and this is a story about uh, a tribe near the Queensland area um, that has a pretty effective way of resolving conflict um, between members of the tribe. Um, and that's with a knife fight. So the purpose of ritualized combat was to ensure that the dignity of each person was intact so that when they walk away, there's no longer a victim and a perpetrator. Um, the idea is to bring everybody back into community so that moving forward, there are no more vendettas against each other. And there are strict rules governing the fight. So you can only cut your opponent on their back or their upper arms or their shoulders, um, which minimizes the amount of harm that can be done during combat, um, lowers the chances that anyone's going to be killed or maimed, um, which also serves to keep the community intact moving forward. Um, so you knife fight. And the person with the fewest cuts is the winner. Um, but then afterwards, they're essentially lined up and their backs are cut up so that they match. So both of them walk away with the same cuts. And throughout the fight, you know that every time you cut your opponent, you are cutting yourself. Um, it forces you to inhabit the other person's position and is a way of bringing equilibrium between autonomy and community. How do we be individuals, but also how do we be a community together? I thought well, about the that a lot. Consequences, or um, yeah, right. 
um, with the idea of an eye for an eye. Like we usually look at that as punitive. Either you get away with something or you get the same punishment back. Um, but this is almost more preemptive. Like, you know, going into it, um, that things are going to level out. That if you harm someone, you are bringing that harm onto yourself. So the consequence of not following the law was more communal and had communal consequences. The punishment that people would receive for lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, that was more communal. It was nationalistic in a sense. They were always seen as a whole mm -hmm. nation. So when somebody receives a punishment, it was like, it was like even the perpetrator um, felt the punishment, not necessarily yeah. just the victim. Yeah. Well, if only we could live that more like that way today. <laughs> if I go back to the classroom, I'd like to figure out how to bring something, you know, no knives with children. Um, <laughs> But yeah, something along those lines to resolve conflict. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I think that uh, I think that the book of the law, book of the covenant, ten commandments, all that we talked about is a way that God used and these writers, the traditions that came together, and the uh, collaborators that brought this together in the book of Exodus. This is a way to show how to be a community, how to worship God, be obedient to one another, and how to be obedient to God and to, to law to make their lives something a little more special. I think that the Israelite people were to be a, a blessing to the nations. That's what they were to, how they were to be special. And you see time and time again, how they kind of mess that up. Um, as we all do. As we all do, right? Okay, so final thought. Thank you, Shreya, for that. That's awesome. I think that that's a great way to live and how to look at uh, Hammurabi's code and also um, just the book of the law in general and consequences and, and how consequences play out as a community, as a nation. Christian theology, I just want to conclude with this, is never to be taken in isolation and isolating verses. So you don't produce Christian theology in a vacuum. You don't say my Christian theology is based on Exodus 21 through 2010. You just don't do that. Christian theology has to be taken and discerned between the connection of ancient and modern times. That's what it's for. That's why we develop theology to put a structure and a framework around biblical ideas and biblical texts so that they're relevant, so that they will carry forward and teach us how to live. I don't think that was anything different than, than here. They took an ideas, thoughts, ancient and modern, and they brought it together in a theology, which in this case is called the law. So Christian theology, though, we think is created in a vacuum. We think is 
sometimes only based on one verse, but if your Christian theology is based on a singular idea, it's probably not good Christian theology. So Christian theology looks at the whole big picture, the whole idea and connects ancient to modern. And so if you heard anything that I, Sharia or Jake spoke and take it in isolation, you're probably in trouble to the big picture. And so if you could look at this section in one big block, but really look at the entire book of Exodus and see how the Israelite people were redeemed, they were saved, and now they have to learn how to live in this foreign land of Canaan. But the promise that they would receive milk and honey and be a blessing to many, many, many nations back from Abraham, they're going to learn how to do that through a little bit of training. Hey, thanks for both of you for being here and thanks for going long 942. I don't think we did too bad in when it came to length, but that concludes our time. I hope you enjoyed uh, just listening in and being together. And with that, we're signing off and good night, everybody have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good night.